Welcome to the Creative Conversations. In today's world of increasing intolerance, sometimes honest conversation between us is the only way forward. Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism, is an initiative of the Sweden-based nonprofit organization Stories for Society, which engages in transformational storytelling. The purpose of this initiative is to give rise to a force for peace by building a global network of established authors whose life stories, work, and commitments demonstrate and engage the impact of intolerance, extremism, and war. It is through the arts and our practice of rigorous and honest conversation that we can make a difference. This series records conversations between creatives for this purpose. Hi, I'm Derek Miller, the author of Norwegian by Night, A Girl in Green, and American by Day. I'm here today with Rachel Kadish. Rachel Kadish's most recent novel, The Weight of Ink, was awarded a National Jewish Book Award, the Julia Ward Howe Fiction Prize, and the Association of Jewish Libraries Fiction Award. Her work has been read on national public radio and has appeared in the New York Times, Salon, Paris Review, Iowa Review, and the Pushcart Prize Anthology. Rachel has been the Corette Writer-in-Residence at Stanford University and a Fiction Fellow of the National Endowment for the Arts and the Massachusetts Cultural Council. She lives outside Boston. I'm with her here today, and she teaches at Leslie University's the MFA program in creative writing. She is a founding member of Voices Between Stories Against Extremism, and it's a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Welcome. Thank you so much. So, uh, Rachel, we're going to begin, if you will, by reading us a few passages, uh, connected passages, from your novel, The Weight of Ink. Could you do that for us? Yeah, absolutely. I'll start off just by saying something about how I got into this novel, and then I'll just read two sections from the very beginning. I wanted to write something about lost voices. I was thinking about um, Virginia Woolf's quote where she says, what if William Shakespeare had an equally talented sister? What would have been the fate of a woman with that kind of talent, that kind of intelligence? And Woolf's answer is sadly very depressing. It's, she died young, alas, she never wrote a word. And we all know that that is the most likely fate for a woman with that kind of intelligence in the time period, given the restrictions on women's education and realities of domestic labor. I couldn't help thinking, what would it take for a woman like that, a woman of intelligence like that, not to die without writing a word or painting a painting or writing a symphony, you know, not a literal Shakespeare sister, but someone with something to offer that, uh, but the access was being denied to her. And so I started thinking I wanted to write a historical novel about a woman who who found a way to not just sit in silence when her voice was being silenced. And I started doing some research and reading, and I was drawn to this 17th century Jewish community of Amsterdam. And part of what got me is that I didn't realize that this community was made of Portuguese and Spanish Inquisition refugees. And there was something so familiar to me about these people and their mindset. The more I read about them, it reminded me of the community I grew up in of Holocaust survivors and refugees. My grandparents were survivors. My mother was born on the run. And there was something so uh, reminiscent about the mindset. And I became fascinated by this community. And so I began writing. And the first thing I wrote was a voice of a 17th century woman, and I'm just going to read it. It's the prologue to the novel. It's just a couple paragraphs long. And when I started writing this, I had no idea who this character was or what her story was going to be, but I knew that this was going to be a woman making a confession of something on the one hand she regretted doing, on the other hand she would do all over again. June 8th, 
1691, 11th Sivan of the Hebrew year 5451, Richmond, Surrey. Let me begin afresh, perhaps this time to tell the truth. For in the biting hush of ink on paper, where truth ought raise its head and speak without fear, I have long lied. I have not to defend my actions, yet though my heart feels no remorse, my deeds would confess themselves to paper now as the least of tributes to him whom I once betrayed. In this silenced house, quill and ink do not resist the press of my hand, and paper does not flinch. Let these pages compass at last the truth, though none read them. So that voice uh, ended up, as I wrote more of the novel, and I I discovered what was going on, um, that voice ended up being the voice of my main 17th century character, Esther Velasquez. And Esther lives in this community of Jewish refugees in Amsterdam in the 17th century. And she ends up going to London in the household of a blind rabbi. He was blinded under the Inquisitors in Portugal. And uh, she's an orphan, and uh, she ends up in a position in in his household in London. He's taken on the job of trying to re-educate this small, hidden Jewish community, also of refugees in London, but through various reasons that I won't go into. He needs someone to scribe for him and doesn't have that person, and she reads and writes the necessary languages. And so she, as a woman in the 17th century, is given access suddenly to a library that she would not otherwise have access to as a woman. And the more she reads, the more she sees there are questions that she is desperate to ask, but these are questions that would bring down all kinds of danger on anyone asking them out loud in the 17th century. This was a time of when people were literally ripped limb from limb for sounding atheists, for asking certain philosophical questions. This is the era in which Spinoza was excommunicated by his own community, a Jewish community, and yet She's compelled to ask these questions, and she's sitting in a room with someone who cannot see what she's reading and what she's writing or to whom she's addressing her letters. So that, it became the, the, um, the 17th century component of the book is her story, but the contemporary component, and this is a novel that alternates chapters between the past and the present, in the contemporary story, you know, just we start out in chapter one after that prologue with Helen Watt, who is a non-Jewish British professor of of Jewish history. Uh, she, while she's not Jewish, she has a very personal and quite well hidden reason for her own passion for Jewish history, and then has to do with her own backstory and a long ago love with a Jewish man, Holocaust survivor in Israel. But here she is uh, nearing mandatory retirement. She's in poor health. She has a hand tremor that. That means that she should not be handling delicate documents. And one day she gets a phone call from a former student she doesn't even remember. And the former student, Ian, uh, tells her that he and his wife have a house on the outskirts of London that they inherited through the wife's family. It's a 17th century house. They've been renovating it to turn it into an art gallery. And when they bring in the electrician to open up the stairwell to put wiring through, he opens up the stairwell and he finds these shelves crammed with old documents. And they figure out that the document seems, some seems to be in Hebrew, one seems to be signed by a rabbi. And Ian calls Helen Watt and says, basically, you know something about Jewish history. Will you come to the house, get the documents out of here, do the right thing with them? And if I may, this isn't completely a contrivance. When these sorts of finds, maybe not this radical, but these sorts of finds do exist. They do. It was fascinating when I was researching the book, hearing the stories of some of these finds that have surfaced. So the other thing I'm going to read is just the moment when Helen, she's gone out to the suburb of Richmond, where the house is. She does not think that the house even is even going to be originally 17th century. She doesn't think the papers will be 
17th century. She thinks the whole thing is going to be a bust, but she goes there, and as soon as she sees the house and steps in, she realizes that, no, this is the real thing. And so I'm going to read just the moment when she first encounters the papers. There, on a small card table beside the window, was a single, cracked, leather-bound volume. Beside it lay the two pages Ian had told her about over the phone, the first items his electrician had removed from under the staircase upon discovering the documents. For an instant, she allowed herself to stare at the pages, taking in the thick, textured paper she dared not touch, then at the counterpoint of two alphabets on the page, the Portuguese lettering that led from left to right, interrupted by scattered Hebrew phrases that ran in the reverse direction. Slowly she read and reread. Ian's voice coming from just behind her. Over there, he said, and pointed. She lifted her eyes. There, in a dim corner at the base of the staircase, untouched by the blinding light of the landing's windows, was a small panel that had been forced open. Ignoring Ian's tentative offer of help, Helen approached the opening. Lowering herself slowly to the floor, her cane trembling heavily under her weight, she knelt before it like a penitent. She stayed that way for a long time, her hands pressed to the cool floor, and a great heaviness nearly overcame her, as though all her years had suddenly taken on physical weight. For a long while she simply stared at the crammed shelves, breathing very quietly. Then finally, knowing she should not, she lifted a quaking hand to remove a single page. A moment only. The page, astonishingly, rested unharmed on her two outspread palms, like a bird that had agreed for just this moment to alight there. This, this moment of discovery opens up the, the whole story. What begins as a result of this, this excavation of the past? Uh, there's the basic question of, you know, in a literal sense in the book of who wrote these documents and why, who left them here. These are these documents that Esther Velasquez left behind at great risk to herself. And so here we have a contemporary scholar, Helen Watt, and then she's working with this American postgraduate, Aaron Levy, trying to unearth these documents. But beyond that, the history comes into their lives and it changes them. And to me, just to speak personally, that that impetus, that notion that if we take history in our hands, it's going to change us and it's going to compel us to do things differently, that fascinates me. And that, for me, comes from my own upbringing where the dinner table conversation with my grandparents would really sometimes be, there would be references like, that's when we were in Russian prisons past the salt. And you have two choices as a child or a young person in, in that moment. Do you just keep your mouth shut and pass the salt? Or do you chase down that piece of history? Well, what does that mean? What, when were you in Russian prison and what was that about? And then, um, and then you pick up the history, but then you're holding it and it's in your hands. And that means it's in your hands. You have to decide how to, you know, your outlook on the world is going to be changed by it and your actions in the world have to be changed by holding that history in your hands. And that fascinates me. It's my personal experience, and I think it's the experience that I was chasing after in this book with my characters. History isn't something just past for you. It feels something that's very alive and with which you're in a kind of dialogue, both in your fiction, in a very, forgive the pun, but in a very literal sense, Mm -hmm. but also in your own life, because you have a very interesting story of were it not for a Japanese diplomat during mm-hmm. the Second World War, in you would not be here today. That's Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. And I think I want to say that any Holocaust survival story is to me somewhat miraculous because 
of the odds that were against anyone, any individual surviving past, you know, August 31st, 1939, you know, in, in Europe, any Jew in Europe at the time. So that any uh, survival story, and my family's own survival story, has many turning points along the way. It takes only one thing going wrong for people to die, and it takes many things going right for people to survive. The story of uh, Kiyuni Sugahara is one of the things, but perhaps the biggest, most dramatic thing in my family's story. So um, my family uh, were on the road. They, they were in, um, in Poland uh, during the invasion, and uh, they were on the run uh, for quite a while, and they made it to uh, Kovno in Lithuania. Um, and there were, uh, there were just masses of refugees there, Jewish refugees, trying to find any way out of Europe. My family at that point had already been captured uh, at an illegal border crossing, and they'd been in Russian prison, and they'd miraculously gotten out of Russian prison. And here they are in Kovno, and at that point, the question was just, how do you get out? How do you get? And you needed to get on a boat leaving Europe. You had to get a country, a transit visa, through a country where you could get onto that boat. And there were all kinds of schemes being proposed. And uh, there was an artifice that was put together by um, Jan Zwartendijk, who I believe was the acting Dutch vice consul in Kovno. And he issued these papers saying that the bearer of these papers does not need a visa to enter the Dutch colony of Curacao. It was true, but my understanding was you didn't need a visa, you needed the governor's permission. So you weren't going to be allowed in if you made it to Curacao, you're going to be turned back. But the piece of paper made it look like you had a destination. So now you needed a transit visa through a place where you could get on a boat. All these uh, Jewish refugees went to the gates of the Japanese consulate in Kovno. Uh, the diplomat in charge there was uh, Chiyoni Sugahara, and they asked him for transit visas through Japan. He wired back to Tokyo and was told that no, he could not issue these visas. Apparently he wired back three times saying, look, they're desperate people here, can we let them pass through Japan? And was told no each time. And then he went ahead anyway and violated those orders and, and did the right thing. And um, each transit visa he issued allowed a family to take Trans-Siberian Railroad to the, to the end of the earth fishing boat to Japan and a, a boat from Japan, most of them, well, people found other destinations. My family got on a ship uh, with one of those visas that was supposed to head to Curacao, but they had to find a way to get off the boat before they landed in Curacao because they were going to be turned back. And uh, they, this was before Pearl Harbor. So they were terrified that Japan and the U.S. would go to war and that the ship they were on, the Japanese ship, would be torpedoed. But Pearl Harbor hadn't yet happened. The ship docked in um, San Francisco and, and I think elsewhere on the coast in California. And each time they were refused admission under FDR's policies. And mm -hmm. the boat was kept under um, searchlights at night so no one would jump in and swim to shore. And they went down and down and they finally docked in Mexico and uh, bribed the ship's doctor to quarantine them all with diseases they didn't have, saying they needed to go to land for treatment. When they went to land, they were hidden by the Mexican Jewish community, I think on rooftops, so the ship sailed on and my family lived there for a couple of years. My mother was born there before entering the U.S. So that's their story, but I think it leaves me with several things. One is that it's so easy to feel despairing in the world today, to feel like well, who am I to make a difference? What can I do? And every time I think about Chiyuni Sugahara, I think this is what one person can do. I think if you do the math and you know look at how many people having children and, and grandchildren, I think there's something like 60,000 people alive in the world today because this one person made this one decision. But even on a much smaller level, we can all do things. Uh, there's so many things we can all do that really make a difference. So to me, uh, Sugahara's story needs to be told 
because it is it cautions us against this feeling of powerlessness. Well, these are my orders. What can I do? Who am I? What can I do? You said many things need to go right in order for people to survive and only one to go wrong. And what what part do you think that we play in telling these stories in if any in helping things move along, helping things go right? Yeah. I think a good story can make the invisible visible in a way that is that is so necessary. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit, if you don't mind, to just a, a story that, a fact, an experience that for me is foundational, uh, which was that growing up, my grandfather, who was a Holocaust survivor, told me, and I suspect he also told my siblings and my cousins, you can't trust anyone who's not Jewish. Now, I would be foolish and disrespectful not to understand why he hmm. was telling me this. I think that he was telling his grandchildren this out of uh, love and protectiveness because he wanted us to be safer in a world that he had experienced as uh, quite literally murderous. So I understand why he was saying it, but I would be, you know, 10 years old and I'd be arguing with him. I'd be arguing with him. You know, yes, we can trust, we can trust. And look, if I have to live in a world in which I can't trust anyone who's not Jewish, I will. We all live in the world we have to live in, but I, I will not choose to live in that world unless I have to. And to me, I think... My personal take on it is that we are only safe if we trust across these lines. We're only safe if we reach out and tell human stories and build these bridges. But I don't mean that in a naive way. Trust requires a lot of work and a lot of patience. You know, no, you got it wrong, but I'm not just going to run off to my own group and say, oh, they'll never understand. We're going to come back and we're going to say, no, here's why you got it wrong. Let's try again. Let's try again. So then the question is, where does trust come from ultimately? And trust requires empathy. You can't trust someone if they don't care about you. Fundamentally, if you don't care what happens to my kids, I shouldn't trust you. If I don't care what happens to your kids, you shouldn't trust me, right? So how do we create empathy? How do we build those bridges? And that's what brings me to fiction and to storytelling. Because the entire crazy enterprise of fiction is built out of empathy. People think the raw material of books is words. It's not. It's empathy for fiction anyway. I've heard you talk about empathy before in a, in a very f- physical way, as though it isn't merely a, a, a concept or term, but is, is a force. Right. Can you right. speak to me a little sure. about that? So, so think about what happens when we, read, uh, when we read novels. If you read a book and you're involved in the book, you respond to it. We all respond to books not just in our minds. This isn't some, you know, in theory, I care about this character. We respond in our bodies, right? We, we laugh out loud. We might cry. If something scary is happening to a character you're reading about, your heart is going to beat faster. Not your metaphorical heart, you know, but, but your literal physical heart. That muscle is going to beat harder uh, because you're worried about this person, about something scary happening to this person. And when you pull back and think about that, it's a little crazy because we all know when you're reading fiction, you're reading a novel, you know, oh, wait a second, these people don't exist. No one ever said these things. No one ever did these things. Why are we responding not just in our heads, but physiologically to these made up people in a made up story? And I think it's because we're wired for this. Human beings are wired for empathy. We're wired for once upon a time. We fall into it. We want to care about somebody who is distant from our own experience. And I think that does a couple of things. I think it's a way that human beings are wired to build bridges 
Because if you read a story about someone who is, let's say you read a story about someone who is similar to you in life experience, age, demographics, you know, all the things that make you what you are, your education, your religion, all of this, someone who's similar to you, but maybe 10 years older or younger, then you've built a bridge of empathy. Your heart is pounding harder for that person. You might laugh or cry about that person who's not exactly like you, a little different. And let's say you read about somebody who is 10 years different from you in age and a different gender, then that bridge is bigger and bigger. And then you think about reading a story about someone who is from a totally different ethnic, racial, gender, you know, religious background from you. You start reading about a refugee. You start reading about someone in a country whose language you don't speak, and suddenly your literal physical heart is pounding for that person. And once you've crossed that line, once you have felt that and, and really had that deep physical understanding of another human being's life and emotions, you cannot be indifferent. And it's indifference that is the biggest danger in the world. It's not so much the perpetrators of bad things in the world, it's the people who stand by and don't do anything. You're talking about bridge building and the and the role that empathy can play. And, and, and yet when I look out at some of the uh, trends that we see, not so much in fiction, but in the way that people are talking to each other these days through social media and through other vehicles, we see almost the opposite, which is a kind of cocooning, a kind mm -hmm. of uh, a, a attractiveness to one's own way of thinking, one's own actions. That where does the role then in in fiction and storytelling, where does it fit into that world? I I think it's imperative that we read and write and encounter stories from outside our own bubbles because otherwise we're just talking to ourselves, we're just reinforcing our own ideas. And I think if, well, if, if the work we all are doing together can do anything, I, I hope it, it helps bring people to encounter stories they would not otherwise encounter. What do you think could come out of that, in a best-case scenario? In a best-case scenario, well, there's a, there's a Toni Morrison quote that I wish I knew by heart, but it, I'll paraphrase it. She basically says... If you know something about my life, you're less likely to kill me. Hmm. And I think it's it's that simple. It's a it's a question of if you actually can look at someone and not see a stereotype or a caricature, but can see a real person, you're going to just stop on the street and make sure that person's okay. You're not going to just step past or or you know or look the other way when somebody's doing something bad to that person. You're not going to think well. Maybe they deserve it, or maybe, you know, um, who knows who's in the right or in the wrong in that conflict. I'm not going to interfere. You're more likely to feel like, no, I have to step in because I know this person. And I think that heightening our sense of responsibility to one another is one of the most important things we can do. It's an old-fashioned notion, which isn't necessarily, but, but I think one that we should talk about, which is when we talk about what fiction can do, we're a short step away from asking the question what it ought to do. Mm -hmm. And it's a, without spinning off into David Hume or getting intellectual about it, do you think that there is a role for a moral role, a civic role for storytelling today? And, and what would that be? I absolutely do, but I want to be careful to say that I think that fiction has to be descriptive rather than prescriptive. Mm -hmm. So, and what I mean by that is, you can't be describing the world as it ought to be. In the 17th century portions of my novel, uh, there was one point along the way where one of my early readers said, 
well, why don't you have this or that happen for the character? And I said, I would love to have this or that happen for the character, but that would be like putting a, a false feminist heroism into the book. It would be adding on an ending that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if it happened that way, but, but it's not real. It's not descriptive of the world that this character is actually living in. And I think fiction, if you try to make it prescriptive, becomes propaganda. You know, you mm-hmm. write the character who proves all the points you want to prove. You write the good characters and the bad characters, you, you know. And even if it's propaganda, I agree with it, it's still propaganda. And that's not the job of the fiction writer. Fiction um, uh, is a very uh, beautiful and very fragile vessel, and it is too fragile to pour all of our politics into. So I think that what we're trying to do is be descriptive, write about the complicated world we live in. We're all flawed, we're all complicated. Um, and yet we need to find a way to do the right thing. That, I think, has a moral force of its own. Would you agree with the statement, or, or how would you play with the statement, that writing truth as best you can understand it is in itself a moral act? Yeah, absolutely. When I sit down to write, I need to shed all, all slogans and all politics at the door of the writing mm-hmm. room and just, you know, I, I was um, saying to somebody, I, you know, I have a flashlight, its beam is the length of maybe a sentence, maybe a paragraph. And I'm trying to figure out what the terrain that my characters are walking through is. And that's, you know, that's my job. And if I do that well, then hopefully that resonates and has a human truth and helps create empathy. In writing historical fiction, what kind of imperatives or challenges do you deal with in terms of getting it right? I'm a crazy stickler about about getting it right. And I have a couple reasons for that. One is the usual one where you just don't want to make a mistake because if you're, well, look, if you've ever been watching a movie or reading a book that's about a profession you've worked in or a place where you've lived and they get even one detail wrong, you know, it sort of blows the whole illusion. Why should you trust anything they're saying? You know, you think, you can't see that view from that street corner. I know, I've lived there. You know, so you don't want to make those kinds of mistakes that alienate readers. But also beyond that, it's very important to me to work with a real history. I think that, I, I really think that learning history is a gift that shouldn't be taken lightly. You know, in, in the case of this novel, I was trying to tell a story about a woman who managed to live a life of the mind in the 17th century. And I thought, when I finish this book, people are going to say, well, that's a pretty little piece of fiction, but obviously we know it didn't happen because we know the names of all six or seven women in England who wrote anything approaching philosophy in the 17th century. And all of them were white, Christian, aristocratic, and wealthy, and childless also. And so obviously there was no you know, Jewish Inquisition refugee who managed to do anything like this. And I wanted to be able to say, yes, obviously this, I made up this story, it's fiction, but if we have centuries in which a lot of people, because of their race, ethnicity, gender, all kinds of things, were not allowed access to education and to expressing whatever it was they had in them to express, a painting, a symphony, a work of philosophy, we have to assume most people got defeated by that because it's very hard not to be defeated, but people still try to do what the grass does. They try to grow up through the pavement you know, most don't succeed, but some do. There have to have been people mm-hmm. trying to do things. We know now that a lot of the music that was written by, we thought was written by Felix Mendelssohn was actually written by his sister Fanny, but published under his name. We know about women who have made art and done other works under the names of men. You know, they say Anonymous was a woman. So if a woman did do what I'm describing my character do in the 17th century and write philosophy, she would have had to do it anonymously or under a man's name. So just because we don't have the record doesn't mean it didn't happen. And so it was very important to me to be absolutely insanely careful about the historical record. I needed to get 
the price of a loaf of bread in 1665, right? I went to extreme lengths, you know, interlibrary loans and tracking all kinds of things down and getting things translated and double translated, and, you know, um, just to make sure my facts were right, because I wanted to be able to say, I'm not just creating a false feminist history. You know, I'm, I'm writing a story that actually could have happened given the real facts of the time. And so maybe something like this did happen. We don't know. I've gone to events, crime writing events, and I heard, I heard one author, very well-known crime writer, say, when asked about how much work he does in trying to understand what are called police procedurals, right? How you get from here to there as a police officer to get things done, investigate a crime. And he said, what a, the fact is, um, we just make it up. Hmm. We just make it up. And, I, and that, that stuck with me because if there is, in this conversation, I can't imagine anything more opposite than, yeah. than what it is you're saying. And there's, um, there seems that, that, there's a, that you're taking on the burden of that in an important way. It's a counterfactual to what could have happened. And there are examples today where a lot of history that people are learning is actually coming through, broadly speaking, art, right? Through film, through stories and whatnot. And it feels to me like there might be a discussion to be had about what level of responsibility the artist has Absolutely. to the truth and what that might mean. Is Have you given this some thought as well? Yes, and it's something, um, I was discussing it uh, the other day with someone who's in film, and I think the guidelines in film are much looser. Uh, people just assume that it's history-ish, and it's that rare uh, historical-based, history-based film that really uh, is a stickler about the facts. I feel strongly about getting the history right. I don't think it's that hard to do. It's just work, like anything else. It's just work. You track down the details, but then you have some fascinating parameters, and sometimes the history you discover is rocket fuel. It's not just that you research and you think, oh, shoot, you know, I can't write the scene I wanted to write because it turns out it's not plausible. That does happen. But the other thing that happens is you learn these amazing details that then change everything you were going to write because you would never in your imagination have dreamt up something as crazy as the actual history. <laughs> and you find out the actual history, it's like, wow, that's mind-blowing. So you just, you follow that. When I was researching the plague in London mm. in, uh, in the 1660s, I discovered that the theory was that the dogs and cats carried the plague. So the governor offered a monetary reward for killing cats and dogs, for bringing dead cats and dogs. And so tens of thousands of cats and dogs were killed. And what they did was they eradicated the natural predators of the rats, who were actually carrying the plague. And so the rats multiplied, the plague intensified. The thing that really ended it was the Great Fire of London that burned the thatch roofs where the rats were nesting. So I read this and of course was horrified, um, but also started thinking, well, what happens in a city when you eliminate all the dogs and cats? Well, you've eliminated all the natural predators of the birds. So you're gonna get this city filled up with bird song and the tanneries would stop their smoke because everybody, because the people have died or fled the city. And so you have an entire different understanding of what the city was like because you followed the details of the historical record. Um, and I think, I love historical fiction because I think it can give us something that only works of art based on history can. I think when we study history, the way it's usually taught, you know, lists, chronologies, facts and figures, mm. it is almost impossible not to condescend. It is almost impossible not to have a patronizing view of those people in history. Like we're looking at a diorama and look at these little figures, look at them walking around they don't know what we know. They don't know, as I think you said, when you were researching, 
you know what's in tomorrow's newspaper, right? Mm. You were researching one of your novels. He said, you know what's in tomorrow's newspaper, but your characters don't. It is so hard to remember that, that they don't have that knowledge. They can't hear the scary soundtrack telling them what's about to happen. And it's so hard to remember that people walking around in the interwar period are not saying, I'm walking around in the interwar period. They're saying, it's Tuesday, mm. and I've got stuff to do. I think sometimes it's only good historical fiction that can restore that understanding of what it's like to be a human being. They're walking around just like we're walking around. They're swimming in history with no idea what the next wave is going to bring, just like we are with no idea what the next wave is going to bring. You are a novelist as another writer, and you're like me. You are working in the world today, and you have expressed to me before, and one of the reasons we initiated this project is a general concern about where things are going. First of all, just articulate for me a little bit. What are, what are some of the natures of, of that concern? What do you see when you look out the window? I see a world that in many ways seems to be on fire, on fire with uh, intolerance, with hatreds. It's like somebody suddenly unlatched the gate and it, it's suddenly okay to welcome in all of these... Um, all these modes of, of speech and uh, hateful speech that we had banished from civic conversation beforehand. It's happening in the U.S., it's happening elsewhere. The screaming uh, on what well, we were just talking earlier about Twitter and the screaming on Twitter and on social media, it's like you're trying to look, look at the horizon and somebody keeps waving a hand in front of your face and we're all getting distracted by these small arguments and you know, who's going to, you know, just people screaming over verbiage. When massive changes are happening in the world, we have all these populations on the move because of climate change, because of political issues. It's putting all kinds of pressure uh, on the governments and populations of a number of countries. And in the middle of all of this, our public conversation is breaking down. We're not speaking like people where everybody's flying flags and everybody's making speeches and nobody's listening to each other. And that's why I uh, feel so strongly about speaking as artists, speaking personally. It is only the human story that can pierce that. I, I'm American, but I've been living in Europe for about, I think it's 23 years now. And there is a different kind of discussion sometimes about the role of art. And if I were to generalize, it would be that in America, we have an attitude that art should be non-political, should be escapist, should be entertainment. Whereas in Europe, and I would say certainly in the post-war period, but, but probably before, that art is meant to be, is meant to engage and provoke and, uh, and to, to get political, to get inside it. What would you say to those who are saying that art, art should stay in its lane, writers should stay in their lane, just shut up and dribble? Right. Well, but speaking humanely and humanly is our lane. I think that is the lane of the arts. There's nothing wrong with entertainment for pure entertainment's sake, but what art always has been is a very deep, profound human speech. It's a humanized way of looking at the world. I think what art does is it tells an intimate, personal story. That's what fiction does. That's what a good memoir does. It makes you feel that you're not looking at figures in a diorama. You're up close looking at an actual real person. 
I don't think there's anything more political or transformative than that. Because once you've read those stories, as we were discussing before, then you see something in the news and you cannot read the news the same way once you've read an intimate, up-close story of a person. I mean, what would you say to the people who are, who are trying to back away from engaging these big issues right now? Because while I, I am delighted that Guardians of the Galaxy is, uh, exists, I think it was awful lot of fun and I think only yeah. Americans could have made it. But I also know that there are there's some work that is there are people I think who are staying away from engaging because it's going to alienate their audience because their audience could be all over the place because we all we're all struggling as artists to to survive and heaven forbid we uh, upset somebody by saying anything. Yes, well, we could have a conversation about Guardians of the Galaxy, but I might be more into discussing the Spider Verse. I don't know. Well, that was good. That was good you know, too, though. We need to bring my my son into the conversation. Look, the way I feel about this is we all have voices. If you don't use your voice now, what are you saving it for? Look at what's happening in the world. Mm. What are you saving your voice for? Now, it doesn't mean we all need to be directly discussing politics. It doesn't mean we all need to be discussing politics at all. As writers, we're like farmers. We have a certain patch of land. I have a a novelist friend who says this. He says, you know, this is what grows in in my land. It's good for growing, you know, tomatoes, but not corn. Mm. We have our fields and our, our voices, our registers that we speak in. So we all need to just sing our songs, whatever those songs are, but if you have things to say and they're things that touch on issues that are political, even if you don't speak directly to politics, because I think that's a dangerous thing for artists to do. I think it coarsens our art often. But if you have stories to tell that touch on political issues and you're hesitating, <laughs> my God, what are you waiting for? Um, now's the time. But one could step underneath Politics is about discussing actual political actors, political events, decisions in government, and and the rest of it. But underneath all that, there are surely discussions about values, about virtues, about who we want to be, mm-hmm. about how we would get from here to there, about how we make decisions. Because you know, part of drama is decision making, right, all along the way. I'm not even sure I have a question really, but it's I'm wondering, I'm I'm thinking about what it means for writers and artists to engage more given that this this space is opening up where extremists of all different kinds are louder than moderates are louder than in the way that extroverts are louder than introverts Mm -hmm. by definition and and it can seem as though things are really really spinning out of control and it's very hard to measure what you're seeing in and its accuracy, and 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 I, I I feel a compulsion for for people who who tell stories to step in to that right. to that kind of space boldly and with courage. I agree with that, and at the same time, I think that if you are a, a different sort of writer or, or a person who isn't personally comfortable uh, speaking politically, that doesn't have to be the thing you do. I guess the thing is. We all just need to do something. Mm. Uh, and if you know, if if what you what you do is bake cookies, then uh, then bake cookies and have a bake sale and raise money for a cause you believe in. I mean, that that right. says I say that as somebody who loves to bake. Um, but you know, we all need to sort of pick where we want to make a stand. It almost doesn't matter what tools we use. If you want to use your voice as an artist in the public square, I think that's a powerful thing to do. But there are other ways we speak. I, I actually. There had been an incidence of violence uh, at a mosque uh, in Canada. This was about maybe six weeks after Trump's inauguration. And I texted and emailed a few friends that night, and it just felt like we needed to do something. 
And the, the thing that was in my mind was actually something that had happened in Oslo, where there had been, I guess, threats on the synagogue, and there was, I believe, a Muslim student group that decided to form a ring around the synagogue, protective ring, ring just people holding hands around the synagogue during prayer services. And I thought, we need to do something like this in Boston. And what resulted was uh, what we called the Boston Chain of Peace, and very quickly organized a couple hundred people to um, make a ring around the mosque during the biggest prayer service on the, <laughs> the coldest day of the winter. It was <laughs> Friday afternoon, it was freezing and snow drifts, and, you know, but we got all these people to come out. And uh, what came out of that was conversations and opening up of, of um, some friendships and relationships between the different communities that didn't exist before. You know, there's so many ways we can act. Sometimes I think we have to be careful about bringing politics directly onto the page, at least in fiction. I feel like I'm always at the risk of forcing my characters to represent something if I try to bring politics onto the right. page. So I don't do that. I've, I find it easier to write, when I write nonfiction, when I write essays, huh. to speak more directly to politics uh, in the world. But I, I guess the point for artists and for all of us is do something. Be engaged. You've been listening to The Creative Conversations, a production of Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at storiesforsociety.com.